0: On November 19th, 1863, anybody around back then? Just making sure you're listening. November 19th, 1863, um, the United States of America gathered as a nation um, to commemorate and to uh, remember something that was extremely um, hurtful and important to us as a nation. And it was, the, the date was chosen, November 19th, the date was actually chosen, it was actually delayed by several months So that the the greatest orator, the greatest speaker of the time was able to finish preparing his speech and be able to deliver it to the nation at this very unforgettable time in our history. And it was on November 19th that a man by the name of Edward Everts, this great orator in the country, um, was to deliver a speech that was entitled, remember this title, okay, just for a couple seconds here. The title of his speech was The Battles of Gettysburg. And so the nation, literally thousands of people, had gathered out in Pennsylvania, out at that battlefield, to dedicate and commemorate the battlefields and the cemetery out there. And he began, Mr. Everett, began his speech with these words. He said, Standing beneath this serene sky, it is with hesitation that I raise my poor voice to break the eloquent silence of God and nature. And then he went on to break that eloquent silence of God and nature for the next two hours. And he went on and on and on and people lost, people were not really sure what he was talking about. But at the very end of his speech, as he was wrapping this up, ra- back, as he was wrapping this up, I want to read to you the last line of his speech. I've uh, modernized the language a little bit so it's easier for you to understand as you don't have it in front of you. But the last line of his speech goes like this that whenever and wherever in the civilized world the accounts of this great war are read and down to the end of time the glorious records of our country in the glorious records of our country there will be no account more memorable than the battles of gettysburg What he's saying is that there's never going to be uh, something that can capture the significance of that great day than the two-hour speech that I just gave. Have any of you ever heard of Edward Everett or the Battles of Gettysburg speech that he gave? No. I would guess that all of us here today, though, are familiar with the speech that came immediately after the main event. A speech that was 10 sentences long, 278 words, that took just over two minutes, that started four score and seven years ago. As President Abraham Lincoln addressed the nation. Very few words, but unforgettable words. Let me give you another example of an unforgettable time, an unforgettable day, and unforgettable words. On September 11th, 2001, an unforgettable day. No further explanation needed. Many words were spoken by many people, many famous people, in the days and the weeks following that event. But probably some of the most memorable words happened at Ground Zero on September 14th as the President of the United States stood on a heap of rubble with a megaphone and called out to the crowd, I hear you, the world hears you, and soon the people who brought down these buildings will hear all of us. And those words, that phrase became kind of a rally call to the nation. But they were unforgettable words for many of us on an unforgettable day. Brief as they were, their power and their impact was memorable and important. We're going to be talking about today and for the next couple of weeks. Unforgettable words on an unforgettable day. We're going to be going back to the unforgettable day of Good Friday. Literally a day when time changed. Literally when human existence was changed by the death of one man. And we want to talk about who this man was and why his life and his death were so important. And to do that, we're going to be talking about words. Unforgettable words that He spoke from the cross. Maybe if you've been around church, you're familiar that Jesus spoke seven times from the cross. Seven words, you can say, each one of these weeks, and in the weeks coming ahead, we're going to be talking about these phrases that Jesus spoke. They're unforgettable. They're powerful, and they change our lives. They're red for a couple of reasons. One, we think of Good Friday and we think of the blood shed. There's red there. Um, Also, in many of our English Bibles, if you look at them, when you get to the words when Jesus is speaking, our our English Bibles try to help us out in in putting them in red to indicate that Jesus is actually speaking these words. So we're going to be looking at these, again, unforgettable words on this unforgettable day. And to do that, we need to spend a couple of minutes this morning, and I'll warn you ahead of time, this isn't going to be comfortable. Or pleasant, But we need to spend a couple of minutes this morning talking about the act of crucifixion. Just exactly what that death sentence was, that execution by crucifixion. What, what did that really entail? What was that really all about? And uh, the, the Persians are the ones that are credited with inventing uh, crucifixion. The Romans are, are credited with perfecting it. They're the ones who really mastered how to do this and do it well, if you can say that. And the the act of crucifixion was literally that you would nail, through someone's arms and through their feet, you would nail that person to a wooden cross. And it was such a terrible way to die that literally in the Roman world, if you were a Roman citizen, you could not be executed by crucifixion. In fact, in Roman homes, you weren't even supposed to talk about crucifixion because it was such a horrendous, horrendous way to die. Now, if you were crucified, people that were crucified, they literally could hang on that cross for up to nine days. And over those nine days, some terrible things would happen. One of the things that would happen is you would become severely dehydrated. You would become delirious. You would lose control of your bodily functions. You would um, have to endure, since your hands are nailed to a cross, you would have to endure birds literally coming and starting to pick at your body. You would have to endure the final moments of where you would have, I know this is awful, but you would have to endure the final moments of where you had no longer enough strength to pick up your body enough to take a breath And you would most likely finally suffocate. That's what you were left to endure as you hung from a cross. Now, one of the other things that, uh, about a crucifixion that I think maybe sometimes we have a, a false picture on our mind. We have a cross at the front of church and we all look up to that cross. And I think sometimes we have a, an idea in our head that the cross that Jesus was crucified on was something that was up kind of high and that people kind of looked up to where he was. More than likely, that's not actually the case. More than likely, this cross over here is, is a much more fitting um, replication of the cross that Jesus was crucified on. More than likely, Jesus' feet were only a couple feet off of the ground. There's a couple reasons for that. One is, in ancient times, it would have been very hard to lift up a body up to a cross that was very high. It's much easier to be able to lift someone up a couple feet off the ground and have them on this cross. So Jesus likely was close to the ground. Another reason people were crucified close to the ground was that other people who came and witnessed this crucifixion, when somebody was close to the ground, they could literally walk up to that cross and they could look that person in the eyes and they could humiliate that person, they could insult that person, they could spit in that person's face. It was a horrendous, horrendous way to die. For Jesus, that wasn't even the whole story. For Jesus, just a couple of hours earlier in the, the temple or in the, the Roman, with the Roman guards, Jesus was actually beaten with fists. He was whipped. They had this uh, stick with some leather that came out of it and attached to that, those strings of leather, leather were pieces of bone and metal and Jesus was whipped across his back 39 times. Some people died from that whipping alone. No, this is horrendous, but it was not uncommon for after a beating like that for somebody's internal organs to be visible from their backside. Jesus had placed upon his head a crown of thorns. Those thorns could have been two to three inches long. He was beaten on his head. He was mocked. He was insulted. And then nailed to a cross to die. That's where we pick it up in Luke chapter 23. We're going to start reading just three verses, beginning at verse 32. Luke records, he says, "...two other men, both criminals were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, it was a hill outside the city limits, a hill outside of Jerusalem, and it had some holes carved into it from the wind that made it look like it was a skull. It looked like there was a face on this hill and it looked like it was a skull. That's where they executed people. And they took them there. There they crucified him along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, Forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they, the Roman soldiers, divided up clothes by casting lots. Sun beating down. Back tore apart. Soldiers taking your last earthly possession and gambling for it. Soldiers that just beat you humiliated you, struck you. A crowd of people as the Jewish leaders who made trumped up charges who were responsible for the 39 lashes who are out in that crowd. More than likely, some of of the disciples who had abandoned him and here is Jesus hanging, dying and what does he say? Father, Forgive them. Do you think we could say that? If that was us up there? Father, forgive them? Really, Jesus? Forgive them? Do you know what the word forgiveness means? Forgiveness, well, first of all, forgiveness assumes that something wrong has taken place. Forgiveness assumes that sin is a reality. And so when Jesus looks out at that crowd, right, we don't have any problem agreeing with Jesus that something terrible has happened here, that sin has taken place, that there's something wrong with the world. We don't have any problem agreeing with Jesus as he says, forgive them, that there's a a reason for that. There's a need for that because sin is a reality. And what sin does is sin creates a wedge in relationships. We see that in our own relationships. If I sin against you... There is, in essence, what I have done is I have taken something from you. I insult you. And what I've taken from you is your dignity or your self-respect or your value. And now there is a wedge between our relationship. We could say that there is a debt that is now owed. And that's the way Scripture talks about sin and forgiveness. Now, there's two ways to deal with that debt, that wedge that is now between us. Either I as the one who sinned against you, I can repay that debt or you, as the one who is sinned against, can cancel it. But in order for the relationship to be healed, one of those two things has to happen. Jesus, hanging on a cross, looking at that crowd of people, sees the reality of what's going on, sees the sin. And Jesus, knowing that they could never repay him for what they have done to him, decides to cancel the debt. Decides to say to that crowd, to those people, as awful as they were, it's kind of like the epitome of human depravity around the cross there, says to them, I forgive you, and cancels the debt of their sin. What does he go on to say after that? Because they do not know what they are doing. And again, we think about that and we think, really, Jesus? Is that right? I mean, this isn't the first crucifixion. This isn't the first time they've nailed somebody up on a tree and watched them die. Really, they don't know what they're doing? This isn't the first time they've they've lashed someone with 39 times. And seeing what that does to a person. Really? They don't know what they're doing, Jesus? Are you sure about that? And I think what Jesus' point is, because of sin, they are so blinded that they do not see the animosity that is raging inside of them. They do not see the bitterness. They do not see the anger that rages within them. And so Jesus can say to that crowd, Father, forgive them. Cancel the debt of their sin, which is real. For they do not know what they are doing. We can see that in them, right? We can feel the animosity. We can feel the anger. We can understand that they don't know. They are so blinded by sin that they do not know what they are doing. We can see that. How about in here. Do we see that? Don't look around. Don't look left and right. How about in here? Can you see that? All of us like to think of ourselves as pretty good people who occasionally do bad things. All of us have done that, right? We've all thought, you know, when we've had an opportunity, when we start thinking about ourselves, when we start thinking comparing ourselves to other people, we think to ourselves, you know what, I'm a pretty good person. Yeah, I occasionally do bad things. And that's why sometimes our first line of defense when we do something wrong, our first line of defense, see if you can finish the phrase for me, is, well, you know what, nobody's perfect, Right? We throw that out there as a defense and what we're saying basically is, hey, I'm a pretty good person, but let's be real. I don't always get it right. Nobody's perfect after all. But I'm a pretty good person. Yeah, I occasionally do bad things. That's a very popular assumption in our culture. That's a very, very popular assumption in America. The problem with it is that that's not the assumption found in Scripture about human beings like you and me. The assumption found in Scripture, and we're going to talk about this for a little bit, the assumption found in Scripture about human beings, about you and I, is that we are sinners. That we are not good people who occasionally do bad things, but that we are bad people who occasionally do good things. That's the assumption of Scripture. I know that's not pleasant. I know that doesn't make us feel good about ourselves. But if that's our line of thinking, then we need to really hit that this morning, that we're good people who occasionally do bad things. And I'm going to push some buttons this morning. I'm trying to push buttons. I want to really deal with this issue. Are we good people who occasionally do bad things? Is that true? And let me just ask you, if you're a good person who occasionally does bad things, then my question for you is, why don't you just be good? If your anger gets you in trouble at home, then why don't you just stop getting angry? If, you, if your lust gets you in trouble, why don't you just stop lusting? Right? You know what the problem is. If you're a good person, right? if you are inherently a good person, then my question to you is why don't you be consistently good? Why don't we just save all of the counselors in the world a whole bunch of trouble? We all make an appointment. We go there. We tell them everything wrong that we've ever done. And they look at us in the eyes and they say to us, Stop! And you can pay $95 and then head out the door. Right? Because if we are inherently good people, we should be able to be consistently good. Can you imagine how much different the world would be If we just all left here this morning, because we're good people, let's just go out and be good out in the world. Can you imagine how different our world would be? I think 90%, 95% of the world's problems would be gone if we could just be good. So for goodness sakes, just be good. Amen. You're looking at me like, it's not possible. I know. You want to know why? Because we're not good. Because we are not good people who occasionally do bad things. See, there is a problem that runs deep inside of us. And scripture calls that problem sin. And actually, it's worse than that. It's not just that we do sinful things. Scripture says that we are at our core, by nature, sinners. It is who we are. And it affects every aspect of our lives. Haven't you ever had this in your life? I hope I'm not the only one in the room that's ever had this. But haven't you ever had this in your life where you are heading towards a sin? You know it's wrong. You wouldn't want your kids to do it. You wouldn't want your spouse or your coworkers or your neighbors to do it. But you're heading straight for it. And somebody might even step in your way and they might put the brakes on and they might say, "Wait, wait, wait, wait. You don't want to do that. Don't you know that that's going to hurt you? It's going to hurt your relationships." And we look at them and we say, "Yeah, I know that." And and they say, "Well, wait, wait, wait. Don't you know that you're going to regret that?" And we say, "Yeah, I know that." And they say, "Wait, wait, wait. Don't you know? You've been down this road before. Don't you not want to do this again?" And we say, "Yeah." And what do we do? We do it anyways. And then we go, and we do it again, and we do it again, and we do it again. What is that that runs so deep inside of us, so deep inside of us, that there are times in our lives when we, like the people who stood around the cross, think to ourselves, I don't know why I do what I do. Come on. If you still don't believe me that we're not good people who occasionally do bad things, just think about this. We have an easier time training our dogs to be more consistent than we do ourselves. Right? I mean, haven't you ever trained a dog to be potty trained? And then what happens? They are consistently potty trained. Once we train them to be good, they are good. And yet we look inside of ourselves, we look at the sin that is in our lives, the sin that we run for, and we think to ourselves, why do I do what I do? And we start to realize That it wasn't just the people around the cross who Jesus was praying for, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing, but we start to realize that it's us as well. That Jesus hangs from a cross on an unforgettable day and says to you and to me unforgettable words. As he says, Father, forgive them even when they don't know what they are doing. Unforgettable words that change the world. Scripture makes it very clear that every sin that we commit is ultimately a sin against our Heavenly Father. And if He is a holy and a perfect God, and He is... And we are sinners to our core, and we are. And if the only way to deal with the wedge of sin that stands in the relationship that we have with our Heavenly Father, if the only two options are for us to pay it back or for God to cancel it, let me ask you, what is the only way to deal with the problem of our sin? Is it us or is it God? It's God step onto the stage of human history, the Son of God, who willingly stretched out His arms on an unforgettable day and spoke unforgettable words to you and to me, Father, forgive them. Father, charge to my account their wrong. Father, give it to me so that they can be released from the guilt of their sin. Give it to me so that they can be released from the punishment of their sin. Jesus stands before you today and he says to you that I forgive you. I've taken it all away. I've canceled it. And the payment that I made, it was a final payment. There is no more payment yet to come for your sin, for all of your sin. It is a final payment. It was a full payment. I paid it to the fullest extent and it was done freely. There are no strings attached. You see, being a forgiven child of God, it's not an issue of trying harder. It's not an issue of trying to be more consistent or giving it more effort. It's a matter of being forgiven. And that changes who we are. Jesus, by his death, has changed us. Scripture says that we are freed from the curse. Scripture says that we are, we, we are no longer controlled by the sinful nature. You know what happened when that happened in my life? I have never sinned since. You can laugh, it's not true. Louise is here so I can say that. It's not that we don't sin It's not that as children of God, we've now checked sin at the door and now we're different that way. It means that we are forgiven. It means that we are released from the guilt of our sin. It means that we're changed. Some of you, some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Some of you, you know... This sermon isn't going to change you, but it's the grace of God. Some of you, the grace of God, it has gone from your ears or your, your eyes as you've read God's word. That grace of God has gone deep into your heart, and you understand because you have had a season of your life where you've looked at yourself and you've thought to yourself, how could I ever be forgiven? Why would God ever forgive me? I can't believe that God would forgive me. And you've had that season of your life, and God, by God's grace, you now understand that at the cross of Christ, you are free. And it's changed your life. Some of us maybe have been Christians for a long time. And we still struggle with those thoughts of, I can't believe I did it again. Why did I do it again? I told myself I'd never do it again. How could God ever forgive me? And what you need to hear this morning is that it's not your effort. It's not your striving. It's not you being more self, uh, you know, monitoring of what's going on in your life. It's not a behavior issue. If that's where you're at today, I just got to tell you that you're focusing on the wrong thing. That you're focusing on yourself. Yourself which does not know what it's doing. Yourself which runs towards sin even when you know it's wrong. And what you need to hear today is that you need to focus on your Savior, Jesus, who went to the cross for you to forgive you. That's what changes who we are. That's what changes our lives. I want to give you a, maybe a helpful illustration to get this, what's going on here. It's a little bit of psychology, but just bear me with me for one, one, a couple of minutes. Human, as human beings, we tend to think uh, this way about events in our lives, that an event happens, okay? And that event forms thoughts in our minds. Those thoughts in our minds uh, create feelings and emotions and those feelings and emotions create behaviors that we exhibit in our lives. Let me give you an example. Husband buys wife for his flowers. Guys, you might want to write this down. Don't do it today. Okay, it's a dead giveaway if you were here at church. All it proves is that you were listening. That's good. Do it another day, okay? Unless it's your anniversary. Guy buys, husband buys, uh, doesn't buy a wife, buys flowers for his wife, okay? And his wife is now thinking, you know what? This guy thought about me. This guy cares about me. This guy values me. And that's going to create feelings, That's going to create feelings like, I am loved by this man. I am accepted by this man. I mean something to this man. And that's going to direct her behavior. And that she is going to want to love him in return. She is going to want to respect him in return. She's going to do things that exhibit the thoughts and the emotions that go along with the event of receiving flowers. Okay? Let me give you another example. Guys, don't do this. We're picking on guys today. Guys, don't do this. Don't insult your wife in public. Don't do it in private either, but especially not in public. But let's just imagine that guy insults his wife in public. Now, what's not she thinking? Let's talk about him. What's he thinking? Right? Let's just assume because there's plenty of guys in the room and we know that this is true. Let's just assume that this is not the first time this has happened. Okay? Guy thinks, I just insulted my wife and he's thinking to himself I can't believe I just did that again. I told myself I wouldn't do that again. I promised my wife I wouldn't do that again. And what are the feelings that go along with that? I'm a failure. I screwed up again. I can't ever get it right. And how does that direct his behavior? Not the first time not the 10th time, but the 20th time, the 120th time, his behavior is, hey, I just fail. I'm never going to get it right, so why even try? I can't get it right. In those situations, God asks of us to take what happens, take that event, and to reframe it for what it really is. What he asks us to do is he asks us basically to pull back the lens and to see the bigger picture, to go back to the unforgettable day with unforgettable words. And what he asks us to do is to look at that event in our lives. Yes, I insulted my wife or I put her down out in public. And while I would tend to think that that was, I can't believe I did that again. Well, the focus is on me. What God asks us to do is to pull out the lens and to look back to Jesus. Hanging on the cross where we hear unforgettable words of, you are forgiven. You are released from the guilt of your sin. And you know what that does for the husband? Is that's going to change the way he feels about that. That's going to change the way that he's going to behave towards his wife in the future. But it's not a behavior management thing. It's not about him getting it right, trying harder, trying to be more consistent. It's about forgiveness in Christ. We are forgiven children of God. We are set free from the curse of sin. We are set free from the control of sin. And we need to come back to this unforgettable day with unforgettable words time and time and time again. Because it is there that we find peace and hope and comfort amen please